We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's the Wednesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And every weekday at 4 o'clock on this great radio station, we're here to take your phone calls and answer your questions. Questions about Jesus, questions about the Bible, questions about the day-to-day circumstances that you live in. We'll do the best we can to answer all of those questions. Here are your phone numbers, 340 9585. That's 340 9585. You can also call us toll free at 877 630 KSLR. That's 630 5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also send questions in via our free mobile app. And if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call from your car is using the KSLR free app. Uh, and all you got to do is hit the banner that says the word to Santa for life, and you'll be connected to the studio. Because it's Wednesday, we got some stuff going on here at Calvary Chapel tonight for Samuel chapter 8. Uh, this is where the book of 1 Samuel really gets fun to teach because the applications are so timely for us. So tonight, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, if it's Wednesday, it means tomorrow is the date day edition. Paula will be live in studio with me in tomorrow morning's program. Now, hot off the presses, and I know most of San Antonio doesn't care about this, but we do. Uh, Andrew and Alex Heberling uh, just had their little baby. So new, I'm not sure whether it's a boy or a girl. Oh, it's a boy. His name is John Paul. And mom and baby's doing fine. Now, the reason I bring that up is because I've known Andrew since he was a little boy. I had the privilege of doing their wedding in Houston uh, a few years ago and watching the pregnancy proceed. You know, one of the great things about being a pastor and sticking it out is you get to see so many lives change, and then you get to see them bring new life into the world. So uh, congratulations, Andrew and Alex, six pounds and seven ounces and 20 and a half inches. And uh, if, if Andrew is any indication, that baby's going to be a lot taller uh, before too much longer. So congratulations, and we're thrilled, and we've been praying for you all day. Thank you for giving us the... Update, I know there is an Uncle Daniel who is on our staff here at the, the Academy um, who's really, really excited about now. Uh, the Heberling family has been such a blessing for us. Uh, we've got the grandpa, one of the grandpas, uh, John Heberling, who teaches uh, high school English and, and literature and a bunch of other stuff, debate to our kids, and Uncle Daniel, who was actually our very first graduate from the Academy went away to school, came back, and now is teaching at the academy, and he's teaching uh, fifth and sixth grade here at Calvary Chapel Christian Academy. So hang around long enough, you get to see really neat stuff. Okay, let me go right to questions. We'd love your live phone calls today. Uh, My first question comes from uh, Lewis, and Lewis says, would you please explain James 126 
and 27. I can do that. Uh, Lewis, let me read it for you first. Um, James uh, is talking about, about doing the Word. Now, this is where this whole book is going, not, not just hearing it, but doing it. And he says in verse 26, If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rate on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. Verse 27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted in the world. What he's talking about here, Lewis, is putting your faith, your religion, whatever you practice, putting it into action. Now, he's using examples here, and that's very important because he's not talking about a specific thing. Now, most of you on the radio program, and certainly everybody at Calvary Chapel, knows how much I hate the word religious. Um, It makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. But it is the right word here that James is using, because what he's doing is describing ceremony and religious, religious rituals. So you do these things, but you don't live what those things represent. James is saying that you're a hypocrite. His point is a wonderful one. There's no value in observances if your life itself is not observant. I mean, if you're not spending time with Jesus, what value does any professed religion have? And James's answer, Lewis, is none. You know, we all know people who go through or to religious services. You know, we get married at churches. Even people who are unbelievers get married in churches. We baptize or dedicate our babies because it makes us feel like we're doing something religious. We go to church on Easter and Christmas because, well, we're supposed to. And what James is really saying is stop it. There's no value in doing these things if, in fact, you've got no real relationship with Jesus. His point is that people then and now were going through the motions of religion and they're missing out completely on the relationship which saves. So let me underscore this, Lewis, for you and for everybody else. Religion has always been man's attempt to reach up to God. Problem is we can't reach high enough. Relationship, on the other hand, is God emptying himself and reaching down as low as he has to, to meet us. And then as he redeems us, he asks us to spend time with him. This is always mindful to me of the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah being ordered by God to stand outside the temple as the Jews came in and out, shouting, don't save the temple, the temple. Now remember, this was during the captivity in Babylon. Jeremiah was in Jerusalem, And the exiles there were still going to temple. They were still going through the emotions. But their lives were steeped in sin. And that's, in fact, why they were being judged by Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. They thought they could sin in private and erase it by simply going through some religious ritual or going to some religious service. And we know that God doesn't work that way. Now, the point James is making about the tongue here is really important. In this context, James is simply saying that you can talk about your relationship with God. You can brag about your church attendance. You can talk about the time that God used you to lead somebody to Christ. But if you're not doing what God's Word says to do, your religion is worthless. The word means empty, no matter what profession you make with your mouth, with your tongue. So this is a put-your-money-where-your-mouth-is kind of passage of Scripture. And then in verse 27, he says, this is the real deal. Religion that God our Father accepts as true and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is sort of an inside-out description of what real Christianity is. It's a faith that works from the inside out. See, if your heart is changed, the things you do will be changed. Real faith... Saving faith is active. James talks about that a lot. Be doers, not hearers only of the word. Real saving faith is active. You show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by what I do. He's not saying that you work to get faith. What he's saying is that if you're really saved, everybody can see because outwardly faith changes the things that you do. Now, in his specific application, 
He's talking about taking care of the people who really need it. You're going to the temple, you're going through these religious ceremonies, but right in front of you, you leave the temple, there are widows and orphans in distress. That's really important. It also gives me a chance, Lewis, and I know you didn't ask this, but it gives me a chance to talk about our modern-day widows and orphans. We have single parents in our church, every church has them, who really, really are in need. And these are normally women, not always, but normally they're women, and they need help. They need the body of Christ. They've come to faith in Jesus Christ, and the churches, we need to adopt them. They're our responsibility. We need to care for them. That doesn't mean we support everything they do. It just means that we need to come alongside. Putting our faith into action is what James is saying. And that's proof that we really belong to God. So that's, I hope, answers your question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. James is always a book that confuses people, and it need not, but it does. Here is a question from, let me get to this one. This is a question from... Rich from our mobile app. Pastor Ron, how does someone reconcile or have a better understanding of the biblical idea of predestination with the fact that man also has a free will? And then the second question to this is, does God predestine some and then not choose others? Um, I don't think, Rich, we have to reconcile those two things. I know we make a big deal of it in our conversations um, with, with especially unbelievers or whom we're arguing doctrine, but, but uh, man's free will and, and, and God's sovereignty, uh, the fact that we're predestined or he, we have been elected by God, uh, those things, never think of them as parallel lines that never intersect. Both things are true. Now, the biblical concept of predestination or election can't be denied. It's, it's everywhere, Old Testament on into the New Testament. But the question, Rich, is the basis upon which God makes those choices. The basis upon which God makes the choice of who he chooses is his foreknowledge. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. What that means is God, who lives outside of time and space, knows exactly who's going to be, uh, who, who's going to be His, who, who's going to ask Him to forgive their sins, and then God chooses them. Now, for me personally, Rich, this is a really important concept because, uh, as most of our listeners know, I'm a, a late in life Christian. I didn't get saved till I was just a couple of months short of my 40th birthday, and my life was such a mess. If I was God, I wouldn't have chose me. But you see, Romans 8, 29, and I'm going to paraphrase it for the purpose of this discussion. It's a promise to me personally that all of those years I rebelled against God, all of those years I rejected him, never once changed his mind about loving me. Based on his foreknowledge, he knew that that day in February of 1991 would come. And all those days I blasphemed him, all of those days that I treated his precious, my Paula, uh, so horribly. You know what? God refused to change his mind. When somebody, you know, treats us badly, we reject them. Well, I treated God horribly. And he just chased me because he loved me. So I was chosen by God. I was predestined to be his. But I also had to make that choice of my own free will. And God knew that I would. He knew that that time would come in February, as I said, of 1991. So I have to make the choice, but God's already made his choice. Now, when people say, well, if God knows what I'm going to do, what difference does it make what I do? Well, God knows what choices you're going to make. But every single one of us has the free will to choose what we're going to do next. We can choose to sin. We can choose to obey. I can choose to believe in Jesus. I can choose to reject him. The fact that God knows the choice I'm going to make has nothing whatsoever to do with God. It has everything to do with me. It doesn't affect my choice. 
The other question, Rich, was did God predestine some and then not choose others? The answer is yes, but he never chooses anybody for hell. See, that's the, the, the problem we have with this. We, we logically think, well, if he chooses some for heaven, he has to choose others for hell. Election or predestination is never spoken of in terms of anything other than salvation. So if we're going to be good Bible students, we have to read the context correctly and not extrapolate or, or eisegete outside of what the Scripture says. God chose me, and I was predestined. The fact that he didn't choose others was simply the fact that he knew they weren't going to choose him. Remember, according to foreknowledge, Romans 8, 29, 1 Peter 1 and 2. So very, very important. Now, one other thing, Rich, and you didn't ask this, but I think this matters. The offer of heaven is given to everybody. We talked about this a little bit in response to a question about Judas yesterday on the program. God offered Judas repeated opportunities to ask for forgiveness. And Judas refused. Did God know he was going to refuse? Yes. Did God cause him to refuse? No. The fact that I offer somebody a relationship with Jesus and they reject that relationship, that can't be laid at God's feet. Jesus' death was efficacious for the whole world. It's only efficient for those who say yes. So, Rich, I hope that answers your question. Uh, We get a lot of predestination questions here uh, on the program. Here is another question from our email inbox. Uh, As an adult, how do you honor your parents? Obviously, the relationship changes when you become an adult, but how do you balance between honoring them and not being under the authority? Rich, if I had a dollar for every time uh, that question has been asked, I'd be a pretty wealthy man. Because this is one of those things that that are difficult. You know, when a parent is throwing the honor your parents card, uh, what they're saying is obey me no matter what. But, But here's what we have to do. You honor them by loving them. You honor them by living a godly life. You honor them by telling the truth in love. You honor them by staying faithful to the scriptures. And especially in the case when a man and a woman get married, they're to leave the house, leave the parents, and cleave. They're no longer two people, they're one. They're no longer under the authority of a parent. They're now under the authority of God. They're under the authority of one another, submit to one another, and a reverence for God. So the relationship does change, but you're never again under the authority of your parent once you're out on your own as an adult because your covering has changed. Your covering is now Jesus himself. So we honor them by following Jesus. We don't honor them by doing what they say. We don't honor them by letting them interfere in our lives. We honor them by caring for them. We honor them by loving them. But mostly, Rich, we honor them by living a godly life and letting them see sort of the legacy of their own walk with the Lord. Mom, Dad, you raised me to do the right thing. And the right thing is to believe in Jesus, and that's what I'm doing. Now, there's another dynamic to this question that I think I need to explore a little bit. What about if your parents are unsaved? You know, we have, and, and this is the case in every church, but but we have blood families that kind of point fingers at their, their, their kids or their brothers and sisters. They, you know, you choose your church family over your blood family. Well, of course we do. I don't have anything in common except blood, but when the blood is Jesus's, well, that's a bond that can't be broken. And there are times when we have to make choices. You know, Paul writes to the Hebrews, we're to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And sometimes it's those ungodly family relationships. So we honor our parents by doing the right, by living right. And the only way we can do the right thing or live right is to be with Jesus, to walk with Jesus. We also honor them, Rich, by praying for them, to get saved, by sharing our faith with them, and being consistent, and please hear this, refusing to compromise. Refusing to compromise what we know to be right and true. 
Sometimes that refusal to compromise will make them angry. Sometimes they will make false accusations against you about your heart, your motive. But remember, God is the one who judges hearts, the only one. God is the one who knows your heart. And so what we do is make sure our heart is right with God. And God will then use your right heart to chase your unsafe family members. One other thing, and this isn't Rich's question. When you are married, ladies, men, nobody comes before your spouse in your life. Not your parents, not your children. Nobody comes before your husband or before your wife. And your kids need to know. I remember, before I was saved, long time before I was saved, when my teenage son, Ronnie, he is our older, when uh, Ronnie would sort of talk back to Paula, uh, I, I would say, now, wait a minute, that's my wife you're talking to. Nobody talks to her like that, least of all you. And that's putting my wife in a position, and I knew that even instinctively back then, Wives come first. Too many times we have other people come before our spouses. Too many times we treat other people, strangers sometimes, better than we treat our spouses. Too many times we say terrible things about our spouses. Those things should never, ever be. And if we're going to walk right with God, then what we've got to do, Rich, is we've got to be sure, absolutely sure, that we're doing the right thing as far as the Lord goes. 340-9585, first half hour. The phones have been quiet. We love your live calls and questions. Here is a, a question from Helen. Here's a question I could do, I think, with the time we got left. Uh, Helen asks, Pastor Ron, why can't God be explained scientifically? Well, Helen, because God is the creator of all things scientific. God is outside of time and space. God is outside of explanation. God lives in a completely different dimension. God is infinite. Something that science can't explain. Science can state that, but science can't explain it. So God is the all-existent one. God is the only completely independent force ever. And science can't explain that. Now, it's not like you believe in God because of the rights to heaven declare the glory of God day after day they pour forth speech there is no nation or language where they're not understood the fact that the sun rises in the same place and sets in the same place every day is overwhelming evidence The fact that the four seasons come and are remarkably similar every time they come is proof of God's existence, overwhelming evidence. The fact that we have a conscience, Paul says in Romans 1, is evidence of its existence. If God doesn't exist and if we don't have a conscience to differentiate between right and wrong, then, then how could we ever explain God? So if we look around, what we're looking for is, is proof. You know, the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. And I know scientists hate this. I know atheists hate this. But you can't do without the, the faith card. We have to believe by faith. We can look at all the evidence, and it's overwhelming. But we have to take that. You still have to combine it with faith. Knowing something but not combining it with faith is a recipe for disaster. That's what happened to the Israelites in the Exodus wilderness. So we don't have to just believe something dumb. Well, this is what I believe, so this is what... What we do is we look at the evidence, and then we look to the one who provided the evidence, and then we make a decision. Let me say one other thing, Helen, that can be explained historically and scientifically. Jesus Christ lived, he died, and he didn't stay dead. There's no 
possibility, no doubt, reasonable or otherwise, that those things are true. And if it's true, then with all of the other evidence, and then we combine, uh, or we combine the veracity of Jesus' statement declaring that he was God, we have to come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and God the Son. And all we have to do is look back in history. Jesus did put his money where his mouth was. He endured the agony of the cross. So Helen, God doesn't need to be explained scientifically. But take a look at the evidence. And you can't deny he's there. Isn't it amazing? We talk about faith and scientists get mad, but there's no greater faith, a misplaced faith, but there's no greater faith than believing that we evolved from lower life forms or believing in a big bang that suddenly there was order, looking at the human body with majestic creation saying this happened by accident. That's so nice. Hey, 340-9585 for your live calls. 340-9585 with 30 minutes left in the Wednesday program. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We've got Lauren calling on line one. Lauren, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Um, Hi, Pastor Ron. I have a really quick question for you. I'm a high school student, and um, today some girls were talking about, like, how Christianity wasn't good, and then they brought up, like, Buddhism and how they felt like that was good, and I didn't really know how to tell them how I felt about it and how to respond, like, to them. Like, because they were just really, like, talking, like, bashing the religion, and I didn't know how to respond. So I was just wondering if you could give some tips. I, I can do that, Lauren. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. I'll Lauren, just, it, just off there. Okay, thank you. appreciate the call. I appreciate high school students who want to defend the faith as well. Uh, Lauren, first of all, what, what I would typically do is ask somebody uh, who starts bashing, um, what do you know about Christianity? What do you know about Jesus? Because the, all of the information they're getting is media-driven. I'm going to have a question. We'll come in a couple of questions if we don't get any other phone calls. And, and you'll understand that, that, that the information is media-driven, and people are simply repeating what they've already heard. So when they ask the question, they won't have an answer. Or when they're asked the question, they won't have an answer. And then in your example, when they compared uh, or favorably compared Buddhism, say, well, what do you know about Buddhism? And they won't know anything about that either. So what I would do is very nicely challenge them to find out for themselves what's true. I wouldn't sit there and engage in a debate. I I wouldn't argue with them. But I would simply say, Jesus Christ is real. He's changed my life. And he'll change yours too. But you have to be intellectually honest enough to want to know what's true. And if you ever want to know what's true and you honestly want to find out, then I'll take all the time you need to sit down and talk with you. You know, when people want to goad you with these broad generalizations and, as I said earlier, these media-driven sentiments, uh, we have to resist that. We can't be dragged into that. And often they will say things like, well, Christians are hateful, or Christians uh, uh, are so judgmental. But here's why, Lauren, they're drawn to another religion. It doesn't really matter what religion it is. Buddha would never ask them to stop sinning. And the truth is, those girls, as young as they are, they want to sin. And Christ always says, no, you can't do it, you can't do that. Do this, but don't do this. And we don't like somebody to impede on what we think is our freedom. And so the reason people reject Jesus is always because they want to sin. They may spiritualize it, they may rationalize it, they may even try to intellectualize it, but it always gets down to the one thing. They're committing a sin and they don't want to stop. And when you get one of those young ladies who will come to you privately and say, I really want to know the answer, then you can sit down and talk to her and you can say, tell me what you're doing in your life that you know is wrong. 
but you don't want to stop doing it. And I promise you, Lauren, that Jesus will open a door, the Holy Spirit will open a door into that person's heart, and you'll be able to share your faith. Don't pretend to be an expert on other religions. You don't have to do that. Just tell people what Jesus has done for you. Again, hold them accountable. Ask them to explain what they said. Why do you say that? What do you know about Christianity? Or what do you know about Buddhism? And you're going to get some lame, shallow explanation. And you're basically going to be able to say, see, that's what I thought. When you honestly want to know, I'm your girl. Come to me, and I'll take all the time you need. And then you walk away and you say, I'll be praying for you. God bless you. And you know what, Lauren? When you take that stand, people aren't going to like you. You're going to, they're, they're, they're going to say things about you. Guess what? Jesus is going to be in heaven like giving you a standing ovation. So, Lauren, I hope that helps. Just don't get dragged into their sort of bogus arguments because they're dishonest, intellectually dishonest arguments for sure. And thank you, thank you, young lady, for for being willing to share your faith and embrace uh, the very people uh, for whom Jesus died. He loves those girls. Never forget, he loves them so much that he gave his life that they might believe. And now as you commit them to prayer, uh, expect the Lord will give you some openings. Great, great, great question. I'm not sure if this question is from Devin or Kevin. Uh, Pastor Ron, please help explain the Trinity. Uh, very simple question, but wow, what a difficult question. You know, we who believe in the Trinity have to have the ability to explain it. You know, it's not enough for somebody to say, um, explain the Trinity, and then we say, well, you know, we just believe it because the Bible teaches it. Now, we believe it because the Bible teaches it. But remember, we've got to be defenders of our faith, apologists. That's not to apologize, but that is to explain. So we have to know what we believe and why we believe it. So understanding the doctrine of the Trinity is important, especially when you're talking to um, uh, a monotheist, uh, somebody from another religion, uh, one God. Uh, you're talking to a Jew. A Jew believes that, that we're, we're teaching pantheism. You're teaching three gods. A Muslim would believe that we're teaching three gods. That's not what we're teaching. The Trinity is one. The Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Lord our God is one. But the word one there is a plural form. And most people don't understand that. So here's, I think the best way to explain it. The Trinity is one in being. Father, Son, and Spirit are all one in being, but they're three in personhood. Sort of a subcategory. I'll try to explain that better than using that, that, that example in a moment. But they're one in being. Here's the example. I'm a human being. Uh, we are all human beings. We belong to the same race uh, of, of, of humanity. So we're all one. We have that in common. But we also are all individuals. I'm Pastor Ron, a different person than you are, Devin or Kevin, a different person than everybody else. I'm a human, but I'm an individual as well. I have a distinct personhood, a distinct personality. I'm unique, for better or for worse. And that's exactly what we're being told about the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Spirit are one in being, but they're three in person, three in personality. They're also three in mission. The Father sent the Son. The Son came to reveal the Father. The Son, when He was leaving, sent the Holy Spirit to reveal the Son. So they have different missions, different functions in their distinctiveness and in their personhood. You know, most of the time when people object to the concept of a trinity, they will say, well, one plus one plus one equals three. But think of it this way, one times one times one equals one. You don't have to get into any of the analogies, you know, an egg or ice or water. You just, just, all of those fall short. Because if the fact that they're one in being demonstrates that they're all fully God. 
They share the same attributes, the same characteristics. They have perfect unity in their personhood, in their oneness in being. So if we understand that, then we've got a glimpse of what this magnificent Trinitarian God is all about. But we have to be able to explain it, all the while also explaining that we're describing an infinite God. And there's got to be some things that we can apprehend even if we fail to comprehend. So I hope that makes sense to you. I appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585 for your calls and questions. Let's go to Alan on line one. Alan, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you today? Very good. Very good. This is a Muslim good. friend, and I've been listening uh, to your uh, comments on the, um, the Trinity. Uh, basically, the Trinity uh, was not... Uh, was not uh, taught by Jesus himself, because when somebody told him about the, the, the greatest commandment, he said, here, or Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Uh, that would be the occasion for Jesus to preach Trinity if there was Trinity. Now, uh, back to what you were saying, that uh, a, a person can be a father or husband or whatever, all those, uh, those are just titles. But when we're talking about a person of God, he is. When you're thinking about God, you don't think you don't think about the Son. You don't imagine the Son, and when you think about the Son, you don't imagine the Father. Uh, nor Jesus ever uh, claimed to be the Father, and the Father never claimed to be uh, uh, Jesus or Holy Spirit. So okay, Alan, let me let me let me stop that. you. Let- yeah, Alan, let me stop you. I want to ask you a question now. You said Jesus never claimed to be the Father, but did he not say the Father and I are one? I want in purpose. If you start... No, 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 no. See, in purpose. see you're, you, that, that, that's, that's not honest scholarship, Alan. He didn't say we're one in purpose. He said, I and the Father are one. Stop there. That was but where then, the period was. Okay, but the, why, why would Jesus say God, uh, the Father, is greater than I? Because he, Philippians chapter 2, Alan, if you'll study this tonight, tonight, study Philippians chapter 2, when we talk about Jesus considered equality with God, something he had, something he possessed, not worthy to, to, to be held on to, he voluntarily let it go. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, read that and that explains your question perfectly. He said the Father was greater than him. What he did was he willingly subserviently um, obeyed his father and he took all of his his uh, uh, lessons he took all of his direction all of his instruction he took everything from the father he willingly subjugated himself though he didn't have to he willingly subjugated himself to the father and that's why he said the father is greater than I and the context there is I always do what my father says I only say what I hear my father say that's very important and if if uh, here's your homework for tonight I know you've done this before but read Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 5 and Paul gives the perfect explanation of that and don't read things in Alan we've been talking about this long enough that I want you to to, 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 to start looking through sort of a different filter if if the Lord our God is one and that word ekad in Hebrew is I'm talking about Deuteronomy chapter 6 if that that word is plural then you've got to deal with the fact that the idea of the Trinity isn't something that comes up in the New Testament alone um, at the very first line in the Bible um, well, because um, the, the, the Trinity, the Trinity, never being taught in the Old Testament. And yes, we know it has. No, no. Oh, okay, I want to say, I want to correct myself. It, it's been hinted at. We've got. It's a mystery. But it's been hinted at in the Old Testament because the word Elohim, in the beginning God, that's the word Elohim, that's a plural word in Hebrew. Let us make man in our image. It's the plural of respect, and we have that same thing in the Quran. No, 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 no. We created the heavens and earth. It's a plural of respect, not a plural of number. 
Now, your, 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 your scholarship is wrong. Look at the word Elohim. Look at, we created God in our image. Or, I'm sorry, we created man in our image. Then what we need to do is deal with what it really says. And we're not talking about uh, um, Arabic. We're talking here about Hebrew. And the Hebrew is very intentional. I I know they're similar. Similar. They're very similar. I, they sound the same. I, I, I know it's similar, but 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 they're not the same. They're intentionally different. And the Hebrew, Alan, is very intentional. So please read Philippians chapter two, verse starting in verse five. Your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus, the same as Christ Jesus. And then read that, and you're going to see Jesus willingly subjecting himself to the Father, though clearly the Greek says that he was equal with God. And then the other thing you need to do, when you're reading Jesus' statements, Jesus affirmed his own deity over and over and over with all of his I am statements. And I challenge you to read those in the Gospel of John, and you just sort of explain them away based on what the Koran says. But, but you've got to look at it for what it says. And you've got to decide, Alan, whether or not you're going to believe it. Now, you have no idea how many people are praying for you. And I just want you to honestly be able to ob- observe what's said and what's meant. And then you're going to make a decision about what you believe. But I don't want you to continue well, to misrepresent what the Greek says or what Jesus said. Well, see, okay? because Jesus did not speak Greek. I mean, Jesus spoke Aramaic. And Aramaic, no, no. the God's <clears throat> name is Allah, Allah. And, and, and don't you think, uh, uh, Pastor Ron, I don't really want to argue with you, but don't you think that uh, uh, Jesus and God are different, two completely different personalities? Yes, I agree with that. They're, they're completely distinct and separate. They can, so, but they're, they're, again, one in being, but different in personality. I also added earlier, different in mission. Those are very important statements. But they're one in being, one in essence, one in attributes, and one in, in characteristics in every way. And all are fully God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The last thing I want to say, Alan, I want you to, 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 to kind of... When we quote the Bible... Doesn't matter what language Jesus spoke. Jesus spoke. Uh, it, it's, it's not even true. He spoke Aramaic. There was a Palestinian language. It was common to the area. But but the Bible was written in Greek. The New Testament written in Greek. The Old Testament written in Hebrew. And so what we've got to deal with is the the Word of God, the New Testament written in Greek, uh, breathed by God, written by by men, but breathed by God. And so the words have meaning, intentional, uh, common Koine Greek was the language God chose to have his pure word written in. And that's what we have to deal with. So, Alan, read Philippians chapter 2. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate your call. And I am not getting frustrated you, with you. I hope, you're not getting, I hope you're not getting frustrated with me. I appreciate you calling. No, no, I'm not. I am not. I'm just okay. trying to uh, communicate with you. There's no hard feeling or anything like that. Nope. None Please at all. You, Thank brother. you very much, Alan. God bless you. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. You know, if uh, Christians would work as hard to know about our faith as Alan is working to find out, we'd all be a lot better off. I, I admire Alan's persistence, his tenacity. We remember that salvation is a work of God, a work of the Holy Spirit, and um, I am confident that that light is going to turn on, and, and uh, I appreciate Alan's calls. Here's a question from Charles. Uh, these are the kind of questions that I have to be careful of because they make me angry. Charles says, if God is a God of love, and he is, we know that, for God so loved the world. If God is a God of love, that was my answer, by the way. Here's his question. If God is a God of love, why are Christians so hateful toward LGBT people? Charles You cannot produce evidence that Christians are hateful toward LGBT people at all. You have no idea what hateful means or what hateful looks like. The fact that we tell somebody that what they're doing is wrong and that God, the creator of the world, says it's wrong and that it's sin and that that behavior separates them from God, the fact that we say that is an act of love, not an act of hate. I used the term media-driven in uh, response to, to uh, Lauren's question a minute ago. Um, uh, the, these, these characteristics are media-driven. These are caricatures uh, driven by the media. You know, to tell somebody 
that I don't agree with your lifestyle, to tell somebody that what you're doing is wrong, by definition, can't be hateful. If somebody's doing something that's going to hurt them and you really care for that person, love demands that you tell the truth. And so, Charles, your question is more hateful than our responses toward LGBT people. You see, here's the thing. I want everybody to be in heaven. Now, I know not everybody's going to be in heaven, and it breaks my heart because it breaks God's heart. But when people behave in an ungodly way and you want them to connect with God, you can't tell them what they're doing is okay. That would be hateful. It would be hateful if I just said, burn in hell. I don't care what you do. That's hateful. But if I give them the way to escape hell, then that's loving. Now, the other thing, Charles, that we have to be careful of, and that's looking at a few weirdos, the Westboro Baptist Church type of weirdos, and calling them Christians. They're not Christians because they say they are. A Christian is identified by his or her love. Without love, we're just making noise. And, and, and the, 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 the strange people that call LGBT We who love Jesus Christ are certainly more loving towards the LGBT community than they are to us. And yet we continue to reach out to them. We continue to understand. We continue to have compassion. But Charles, you need to get saved to declare that God is a God of love when he sent his only son to die for the sins of the world, to die for your sins, Charles, commands us to tell the truth in love as well. So, Charles, those kind of questions hurt my heart. We've got, Dan, I'm having a little... No problem with my screen. Dan from Bernie on line one. Dan, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Uh, it's Ben, uh, but I love your show. And oh, ben. my question, yeah, no problem. Okay, um, both you. of my questions relate to your two previous questions. And first of all, uh, is Isaiah 9 6 a reference to the Trinity in the Old Testament? Uh, no. And that is. No? Okay, it says, no. you know, the one that says, For to us a child is born, a son is given, he shall be called Wonderful yeah. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Yeah, it, it's, that's, that's a messianic prophecy, of course, and it's, it's a reference to Jesus. But, but, but the reference there specifically, Ben, is that, that he will be, that this child will be the Son of God. That's to us, a son is given, a child is born, that child will also be human uh, in, 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 in his, in his uh, humanity as well. So, so this, this child will be both divine and human, and of course we know Jesus is forever the God-man, so that's just a prophecy of the dual nature of Jesus, the, the 100% God, 100% um, 100% human. Okay, okay, I understand that. I just assume since Jesus said he would leave us a counselor with us when he left, that that that, that term, wonderful counselor, was a reference to yes. that he would also be recognized as Holy Spirit. No, when Jesus talks about the wonderful counselor, that's a very specific reference to the gift that is coming from God. Remember when, when Jesus said, uh, ask what, what you will, it will be given to you, and how much more uh, it, will your Father give you the Holy Spirit? Jesus talked about the, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, but when he was in the upper room and talking about the wonderful counselor, when he was talking about... Now, in, in Isaiah 9, the wonderful counselor is not a reference to the, the Spirit at all, but, but, but when okay. he was talking to him, his disciples in the upper room, um, he said, it's good for you that I go away, because if I go, I will send another counselor to you, uh, the, the spirit of truth. Um, uh, some translations use the word comforter. It's a Greek word, parakletos. Um, but the idea is 
uh, I'm going to send another me. It'll be different in physical form, but he will be in you. And, and, and then Jesus says, lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. So uh, Jesus speaks very specifically about the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you'll remember, Ben, that wonderful time uh, when when uh, the um, disciples were um, afraid that he was going to leave them. And he says, I will not leave you as orphans. And then later, after his resurrection, he appeared to them and breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit of God. So, Isaiah 9, great passage, prophetic of Jesus, his divinity and his humanity, the promised child, the Christ who would be born. Uh, but it is not a reference to uh, the Trinity at all. Okay, thank you, thank you. And uh, I have a, a quick second question. Hopefully, hopefully it's okay. not too too difficult. First John five sixteen says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is he talking about? That sin that leads to death there. Well, uh, we're, we're, I think, really out of time here, so uh, I'll, I'll probably have to tackle that one tomorrow, Ben, first the program. It's a sin talking about physical death. There are things that Christians can do that will be judged by God in this time, and, and Christians die as a result. That's what John's referring to. I'll be more specific at the beginning of our program. It won't be tomorrow. It'll be Friday, so tune in on the Friday. Okay, program. always. Tomorrow? Thank you, Ben. Tomorrow, Paul will be live with me on the Date Day Edition program. May the Lord bless you. Keep you tonight. First, Samuel 8. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The word to stand on for life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.